If you'd like to read along, Numbers chapter 11, the first 10 verses. Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There we read, And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it. And his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away and there is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And the manna was as coriander seed and the color thereof as the color of bdellium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills or beat it in a mortar, baked it in pans, made cakes of it. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. Our subject today is, and listen carefully because I don't want to be accused of something, but discontent Christians, question mark. And the question mark is the important part. Discontent Christians, question mark. And our subject today from this text will follow similarly kind of on the heels of our message last week in the book of Jonah, which we titled Pouting Over Providence. There is a close relationship between pouting and discontentment. And so discontent Christians, that's the way we want to address our subject today. Emphasis being on the question mark. Is it possible for a Christian to be discontent? Well, yes, it is. Is it possible for a Christian to sin? Of course it is. Is it possible for a Christian to be tempted? Of course it is. Can we become carnal? Of course we can. So it is a possibility. But if we are discontent, it should not be an habitual state. If we are discontent, or as last week, if we think we need to pout over providence, then again, it should be a temporary thing that hopefully we soon recognize was of no avail and was sinful and we repent of very quickly and get back right in fellowship with the Lord. But here we see, and if you're familiar with the story of the children of Israel and their exodus, what is not just confined to the 11th chapter of Numbers, a brief or temporary period of complaining, discontentment, etc., etc. But unfortunately, and we hate to even have to address this, this was true of the whole 40-year exodus, that the majority of this people were habitual discontent, yet, of course, called and labeled, and they were, by national election, the people of God. Now, if there is such a thing, which we've just said it is possible, 
To see a discontent Christian, that is a shame and a disgrace. There is no excuse for it. Just as we said last week, pouting over providence, no excuse. It reveals either our weakness or our ignorance or maybe both sometimes. And it dishonors our Lord. And it it can even be a poor testimony that causes the enemies of the cross to blaspheme or continue in their sinful, wicked ways unconscious of their sinfulness. But it is revealing a discontent Christian in that regard. Now the Jews had the name of the people of God, right? They were the seed of Abraham. But what we've read about here seems like most of them were really Egyptians at heart. And again, we are reminded throughout the Bible and even in our current times, you can claim any name and and lay claim to something. But what's really important is what you are at heart. So a Jew by name, but Egyptians at heart. And as a song I once heard says, similarly, they had all come out of Egypt, but it's obvious Egypt had not come out of most of them. And that's something that you and I as Christians are in a battle with, isn't it? And we will be in our whole lives. It's called sanctification. And in sanctification, we're trying to get rid of Egypt. Out of our lives, out of our minds, out of our soul, the old ways, the old bondage, the old things, the old man. Right? I, I can't remember that song. I'd love to hear that. I need to remember that. That beautiful song that... Uh, Lord, you took me out of Egypt, now take Egypt out of me. Something was the course. And that's just so vividly true, biblically. I'm going to be very blunt and very honest with you. What we have here, and I'm not speaking condemningly, but I am speaking truthfully. What we have here with the children of Israel, the majority of them, who are guilty of these things we're reading of here in Numbers, and not only here, but in other places in the Pentateuch, is hog and dog Christians. Now the hog and dog Christians is what Peter labeled in 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's go over there and read that and I want you to see the similarity before I proceed. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. For if if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it is better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them, but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. This people have escaped the bondage of Egypt and all the problems there and have seen a great and wonderful deliverance by the mighty hand of God through many plagues crossing the Red Sea and all the events that have transpired at Sinai. And now they are only three days' journey from Sinai, okay? So that gives you the setting of where these people are at. There's 38 years to go. They're three days from Sinai. I believe correctly they are in the second year and the second month, and I... 
hesitate to say I'll back up and read, but I believe about the 20th day or something it says in this chapter. So think about their track record thus far. And here in our text, they are obviously, as Peter puts it, entangled again with Egyptian thinking, tendencies, covetousness, lustings, etc., and are overcome, and so it's worse with them now than it was. Better not to have known than to want to go back. Especially if you call yourself a Christian. So again, I don't say that to be funny, but it's very blunt and it's very true. We don't need any more hog and dog Christians. Because the bottom line is, they're not really Christians at all. They take a name, but they don't live up to the name. And the bottom line is, if you can go back, you went back because you were not one of us. For if you had been one of us, you would have continued with us. But people go back that manifest that they were never of us. So these are not, and for clarity's sake I say this, these are not individuals who were once saved and have fallen away. There's no such thing. People who fall away were never saved. That's why they fall away. That's what that scripture says. So I want to show you or remind you or talk to you this morning about two things. Number one, the proof of who these people are and also that we would make an application as a warning to true believers not to be caught in their errors, which leads to misery and chastening. How do we know they were not Christians, but that they were quote-unquote discontent Christians in that regard? Well, as we said, they're God's people. They're under a name. But they are like Christians who are unborn or never have been born again. That's the bottom line. It's a name. We call them nominal Christians in this day and age. They take a name, they don't live up to the name. They talk the talk, they don't walk the walk. There's no fruit on the vine. It's a withered tree, even though it has a name over it in that regard. So let's look at these revealing characteristics, and they're not hard to spot, and they're not hard to find, and they don't need a lot of expounding upon. But the bottom line is, and keep in the back of your mind... What these people have experienced and seen over the last two or three years, even at Sinai, for the time they've been there. They, they're just now leaving Sinai, okay? I mean, the pillar of the cloud has been there with them at Sinai for almost two years. They set up the tabernacle there. It's all been functioning and everything, okay? So God's presence... <laughs> has been there every day and every night. And now it is lifted up and they've moved three days to Paran. Three days. And what do we read? And when the people complain, what? What? We have to ask that. And if I heard you complaining or you heard me complaining about something in my life or providence in my life, you should say the same. What? What? Complaining? And as you know from the story of the Exodus, the complaining here is many times also mentioned as murmuring. And they've already started that. They started that back in the 16th of Exodus in verses 7 and 8 where Moses reminded them, you're not really murmuring against me, you're murmuring at God. 
Verse 7, Exodus 16, The morning when ye see the glory of the Lord, for he that heareth your murmurings against the Lord, and what are we that ye murmur against us? Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and the morning bread to the full, that the Lord heareth your murmurings which you murmur against him, and what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. So when people murmur against a Christian, complain against a Christian, blaspheme against a Christian in the church or whatever, it is essentially the Lord. We're reminded of that. That should humble us. Be careful what you say. <laughs> but they are complaining and murmuring. There is nothing here in this justified or that is excusable. In them or us. Think about it. Complaining. Now our lives are filled with it. It surrounds us all the time. What good is complaining? What benefit does complaining do? And again, synonymous, murmuring. What's the root of this? What causes this? There's no justification for it. Let me tell you, the bottom line is, like the pouting thing. When we complain, it is one thing. Self-focus. Period. Period. I'll go further than this. Does any human being have a right to complain? When we consider God, His revelation of who He is, what He does, what He has done, what He is doing, what He's going to do, who has a right to complain? Complaining is a product of sin, but it is unjustified. Unjustified. Turn to Lamentations chapter 3 with me. We're going to get to this, but we'll just deal with it right here and right now. Lamentations chapter 3, and let's read at verse 37. Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass when the Lord commandeth it not? Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. That's similar to Job's statement, Job 2. Wherefore doth a living man complain a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto the God of heavens. We have transgressed and have rebelled. What right do we have to complain? What right did they have to complain? Just just let it soak in. Like I say, I don't need to expound. We just need to think about it. That's all. Just let it soak in. But we all do it. It's part of our nature. It irks me when I do it. Does it you? Sometimes I tell people, they say, how you doing? I say, man, I'm doing great. I could complain about a few things, but what good would it do? And you don't want to hear it. And that's so true. I despise being around somebody that just whines and moans and complains and is never happy or content about nothing. Those type of people, I'm going to be honest with you. I refrain from asking them how they are or how they are doing. Not because I just don't want to hear it. I don't want them to give them an opportunity to do it. I'm going to try to head it off at the pass. Try to direct it some other direction. Well, tell me what God's been, how, how you've been blessed this week or something. Much better than saying, how you doing? When you know what's coming. 
There's an old feller. I, I think of him. I can't help but mention this. Old feller in the church I was raised in, real church in Arkansas. And this this feller was poor, poor. I mean, I mean, we were poor, but this this family was poor. And this poor old feller had been raised in poverty. And I don't, man, I'm I'm serious. I really don't. I don't think he could read and write. I don't know. If he he may have to sign an X's name. I don't. Had a bunch of kids. They were all poor. anyway. He was a member of our church. He was a good guy and all that in spite of all that. His name was Neely Butler. And any time you asked Neely how he was doing, here's what he was going to say. He'd shake his head and say, pretty bad, worse. Every time. Every time. And, you know, looking at him and even looking back, I, I realized a, a lot of that was just pure ignorance, you know. I mean, because... He wasn't taught a lot of the things a lot of us have been taught about the goodness of God and, and things like we could have been taught and he could have been taught. He was teachable. But it was just a habit of his. He was so used to saying that, regardless of what was going on, he was pretty bad worse. And you know, again, he didn't know grammar. He better been to get school. But you think of that. You know, I mean, I, I think of another man, a preacher. And he really had some problems. And in his elderly years, I'll always remember him for who he was. How you doing, brother? So-and-so, and I won't mention his name. He would grin, and you knew he wasn't good. He'd back, and he'd be humped over, and he'd shake his hand. He'd shake his head and say, fantastic. Every time. Amen. I mean, could he have complained? Yeah. Did he have some legitimate? Yeah. I mean, he was hurt and pain, physical, you know. We've all got that type of stuff. But who wants to hear it? Why do I want you to focus on me? Why should you want me to focus on you? Well, complaining, bottom line, i got to move on in, has an opposite. And you know what it is? It's very simple. Thankfulness. Thankfulness. What's the Bible say? In everything, give thanks. Give thanks all the time, all the way. If you don't want to be a complainer, let me tell you how. It is simple. It's simpler than taking aspirin for a headache or anything else. Just be thankful. And you can't be a complainer if you're thankful. Because when we are thankful, where's our focus? You're not in the picture, neither am I. Our focus is on God where it ought to be. But when we lose focus of God, we start to sink like Peter on the waves, don't we? Because who are we looking at then? Poor me. Complain. And when we complain, we're failing in so many ways. Let me just mention a few things here. Just, just get you thinking and I'll leave it with you. But when we're complaining, we're really pouting over providence in some degree. It's a similar thing. We are rebelling against God. It's not as it should be. It's not as I want it to be. It's not what I need. It's not what I want. Who's in control of all that? God. So you're not happy about it, huh? Obviously not if we're complaining or pouting, right? Well, you know, with this, this is like people who take God's name in vain, OMG or whatever. They don't realize they're taking God's name in vain. It's just so natural and everybody does it. That's profanity. Yes. Well, that's like when we whine or moan or complain or 
get upset about something, you know, and there are things to legitimately get upset. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we overlook sin and injustice and crime and wrong things. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying murmuring about or complaining about things because of selfishness is rebellion against God because we're not acknowledging that God is sovereign and God has the right to do what He wants to do, when He wants to do, with whom He wants to do, how He wants to do every day. So we're rebelling against God's sovereignty. And we're also forgetting, what do, you, what do we really deserve to start with? I mean, who are we? Sinners. You know? And we're straying away from our calling. God has called us to be a what? A holy people, a peculiar people. His servants. And we're to be the, we're, we're the light of the world here. We're the ones that are supposed to be happy, rejoicing, in spite of anything, not moaning around their jaw on the ground, complaining and whining about some two-bit piddly something that went wrong or something that fell apart or something we don't have or something we couldn't get. But sadly, it's so easy to do, isn't it? It's the easiest thing in the world to do. That's why people do it. It doesn't take hardly any effort. It just naturally. It's just like talking almost. Your tongue will flap and you'll talk. You know, we'll end that talk very easily complain. Well, that obviously should not be a characteristic of God's people, but that was a characteristic of this people. And then they cried out when God, being displeased, chastened them. Now, I can understand that because I've been whipped a few times myself and I cried out a lot too, you know, when I got a chastening in that regard. It didn't seem like a chastening, it seemed like a beating sometimes. But the problem here is, again, they're crying out over something that really is illegitimate. They had it coming. It displeased the Lord. Any complaining displeases the Lord, whether it's a sinner or a believer. Because God is good to the just and the unjust. And that's why I say universally, who has a right to complain about anything? I mean, after all, it's God who made it possible for you even to exist, who has given you life, whatever life that is, who sustains that life, who will take that life, who fills that life with whatever. I mean, you know, you may be thinking this, I've thought this. Well, you know, you're right. Yeah, you you shouldn't complain about this. But, you know, down here as we get on down, there are there are some, you know, one or two things down here that, you know, I, I've really got a right to complain. <laughs> the Holy Spirit keep working on you. You just keep chewing that and, and it'll get, let me assure you, to zero. When you get to zero, then you're where I want, I'm trying to bring you along, okay? I know, you know why many times? Because I've made that trip a lot of times. A lot of times. It don't do any good. It displeases God. And you're really crying out for a whooping. As we say, whooping. And when the whooping comes, the people start crying out. And this is this is this people. This is this is their nature to do. Cry out when we got a problem and forget the blessing or the remedy as quickly as it gets there. And then do the whole thing again. Just like the book of Judges is going to be when you get over there and read it, right? This is the history of this people. That should not be the tendency 
of God's people. And here's one of the problems here. They don't, they don't cry out because they're sin. They cry out because they're chastening. They've got a problem with the chastening. They deserve it. Just like we, when we as kids, you know, it didn't matter if we deserved it or not. We still didn't want to get it, did we? It hurt. And then here's something I've got to mention as a preacher. The people crying to Moses. They ought to have been crying out to God. Repenting of their sin. They don't want to talk to God. Remember that at Sinai? We'll talk to you, Moses. We don't want to talk to God. And I mention this because I've had people tell me, pray for me, preacher. Pray for yourself. I've told people. I'm, I'm not against praying for people. I've told people. I've, I've actually had a guy, I remember one guy one time said, well, I want you to bless me before I leave. Well, I, <laughs> I said, I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you. But I said, blessings have come from the Lord. I'm not no Catholic priest. I'm not even going through, through, through the, the deal of thinking that I can bless you. Blessings come from God. And I've told people, literally, and I've done it kindly. I've not done this rudely. I'm not that way. And people say, well, would you pray for me, preacher? I said, yes, I will. But are you going to? I mean, my prayer has no more, more, more clout than yours does. You know, he will hear you as he hears me. And after all, it is your problem. Maybe he ought to hear it from you first and me second. But here again, people have got this idea, you know, that a man of God or a religious person, you know, has got the inside track. And they hint at that and they joke at that. You know, it's not a joking matter, really. But anyway, then it says they fell to lusting. Well, what is lust? Well, again, it's like complaining. It's self-focus. And this is not sexual lust. This is here a lusting for things that gratify, which in this particular thing, they wanted meat to eat. What they're really lusting for is meat and vegetables of Egypt. That's it. That's it. But again, it is self-focus. It is prompted by fleshly gratification or desire. Therefore it is sin, therefore it displeases God, therefore it is wrong, and it's like a little baby that don't get its milk on time, it's going to whine and complain because, you know, it's not getting what it wants when it wants it. And this is sad and pathetic, but this is us sometimes. The lusting goes to a questioning of God. Now this is just almost unbelievable for us to even fathom, I believe. It says there in verse 4, They fell a-lusting and said, in their weeping, their whining, complaining and crying about this, Who shall give us flesh to eat? That is just one of the most mind-boggling questions, but it shows what's possible. Think what these people have seen. I, I don't have time to go through it all. Think of what they saw in Egypt. They saw stuff that people have never seen before. They saw those plagues. I mean in the proportion and the intensity and how that God's people were spared and the Egyptians were not. They saw that distinction. They saw the firstborn of man and beast die in the last plague. They saw the Red Sea parted. 
They could step out of their tent any time, day or night, 24-7, either see that pillar of fire or that pillar of a cloud. Manna was falling, breakfast was on the ground every morning, and they say, who's going to give us flesh to eat? It's pathetic, but we are pathetic. We can get there. God forbid that we do. These are Christians? These are discontent Christians? No, these are not Christians at all. These are not people who know anything about God. They know about God, but they don't know God. Or you wouldn't ask a question like this. How long has He been feeding them? Every day, on time, and never been late. And it's not enough, and they want more. Not a characteristic of a Christian. Who, they say. Who? That's not hard for me to answer, is it you? Who sustains you every day? Who upholds us with His power and His might, spiritually and physically and so forth and so on? A question like that doesn't come from a believer. A question from that, like that, comes from those who are faithless. Absolutely faithless. In spite of all they've seen, all they've experienced, and I say to you again because I don't I know we cannot grasp it, they heard the voice of God at Sinai, the mountain quake, the cloud, the fire, the thundering, they heard and saw all of that. These people have experienced more than you and I and a hundred generations on this earth would ever experience. And they say, Who's going to give us flesh to? Wow. And then they got a memory problem. We remember. What do you remember? You know, your memory can tell a lot about who you are and what state your soul is in. They're remembering things in Egypt. You know, I remember a lot of Egypt things too, but it sure don't make me happy. I wish I could erase my mind of my experience in Egypt, don't you? I wish I could erase my mind of my sins and my sinful past. It don't matter how bad or how not so bad it is. We've all got a sinful past. We all spent time in Egypt. We were all born in Egypt. We were born in the bondage of Egypt before God saved us and delivered us. And if all we can remember about Egypt is the nice stuff down in Egypt, then we've never been born again. They want to go back. What do they remember in Egypt? Do they remember the mighty hand of God in those plagues? No. Fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. The stuff that don't matter. The vegetables. Not the plagues. The vegetables. Literally, we could say in a spiritual sense, the fruits and enticements of sin. Man, how good sin tasted back then and when I was sowing my wild oats. Anybody that can say that's never been born again? Sin is an atrocity to the believer. We have to remember we came out of Egypt. We have to remember some of it, but God forbid that we dwell on it and wish we could be back there again. That's a sure sign of a dog and hog Christian. Because your nature is telling you what? I want to go back. I was happier there than I am now. That's not the attitude of a Christian. That's not the Holy Spirit working in. That's just the hog and the dog manifesting who it really is. Isn't this amazing? They could remember all this 
good food in Egypt from two and a half years ago or two, a little over two years ago. And they couldn't remember the manna from yesterday. They couldn't remember Sinai three days ago. But that's the way the mind works the unbelieving because they live not by faith but by sight. By what they feel, what they experience, what they enjoy with no thought for the future. Wants and needs of the past. Couldn't remember all God had done in the last two, three years and all those miracles and all that mighty power but they could remember those miserable vegetables. And wish they had it and had meat to go with it. Vegetables good, but we'd like to have some meat, but we don't know who can give it to us. I don't mean to embellish this, but it's pathetic. And it's pathetic. This is this is the unthankful state we can get in. When we get unthankful, complain, whine, moan, all that stuff. We're prone to it. It's natural. We're wired that way as sinners. God forbid we be that way as Christians. And then so discontent. Look at this statement in verse 6. But now our soul is dried away. What do they mean by that? Well, that's their expression of discontentment. They're unhappy. They're unhappy. And you know if you studied this and you have and I've preached on it and what have you, throughout this Exodus journey they're going to keep bringing up let's just, you brought us out here to die. We should have stayed where we were. Well, when you were where you were, you wanted to get out. Now you're out here and you want to go back. You know, I mean, unstable. In that regard. Well, their bodies weren't drying away. They were healthy as they could be because God was giving them manna, angels food every day. But their soul was dried away. Their poor spirits were dragging. Because they didn't have any vegetables go with that man. And I'm making fun and they deserve to be made fun of and so do we when we get like this. There's just this old man. It, it's hard to believe that human beings can get this way. But if you've been there, you know we can. You know the proneness and the possibility. Yeah, you know I'd have to say the same thing is true of these people. Their soul was dried up. There wasn't any spiritual life there. When I read that, you know what comes to my mind? You know what a raisin looks like. You ever seen grapes when they fall off a vine, they're laying on the ground, and you know they're not the raisins you want to eat, but they're just withered up and shriveled up and dried up. What once was a nice, plump piece of fruit. That really is a good illustration or analogy to the state of the soul of people who don't live by faith but live by sight and want things to gratify the flesh but don't care nothing about God and can't remember God and can't remember what God's done, what God's doing, and what the future holds for them. I mean, after all, they were headed to the promised land, right? So this reveals their discontentment here, their void of spiritual life, their their lack of faith. Because Christians can be content. Can be, should be, will be to some degree. It's not something that just happens immediately when God saves you. Oh, you're content then over the fact that your penalty of your sin has been paid and you have the assurance of eternal life in heaven. 
But there's a lot of things going to happen to you in life to make you discontent. But we learn. We learn about God's sovereignty. We learn about God's control. We learn to trust God and walk by faith and learn that God knows what's best for us better than we do. Even to the extent of Job. And you can be content. In fact, we are instructed to be content. And this is the treasure of life to the Christian. This is the gem that we should all be striving for in our Christian lives. And our obedience to Christ is to attain that place of contentment. Now Paul told Timothy, now let me read you these scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. He says, Having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. So I, need, I believe I need a little more than that. Don't I, Lord? Contentment is saying, Lord, it's up to you. The food, the raiment, whatever. In Hebrews 13 and 5, we read, Let your conversation be without covetousness, Covetousness is the lusting they were doing. Be content with such things as you have, for he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, The Father in heaven knows you have need of these things. And Paul said in Philippians 4, 11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am in therewith to be content. So again, it's not something you got 100% of dose of when God saved you is something you learn over time. Paul said, I have learned to be content. It is like going somewhere and finally when you get there, you've arrived. And I want to make a distinction here. Don't shortchange contentment for happiness. It's so much more than that. Being happy is just a short-term fleeting thing. It's like all the stars out there that make up the light that the stars produce. There's just so many happy things. But contentment is so much bigger and encompasses all of that. Things make us happy. Contentment is a state of being. It's a state of mind. It's a state of the soul. And most people just are content with the happy stuff. You're shortchanging yourself. Especially as a Christian. If you stop at just getting happy or being happy or having a happy moment. Contentment is a state of being. It's arriving at the state where whether you have or you don't have, it don't matter. Job was there when he said, Naked I came forth, naked I'm going to return. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. That is a state of contentment, not a statement of happy. He was anything but happy, but he was content with the will of God, wasn't he? Last thing on them, and then we'll make a wrap this up. 
they're weeping in verse 4 and 10. Well, that shows their sincerity, right? No, babies are not being sincere when they cry, when they don't get what they want. This weeping is not in the proper sense. They're not weeping because they pity them, their sin, but because they pity themselves, not having what they want. So again, it is unjustified, and it reveals their unbelievingness. Let's just make a quick application here of the things we covered to ourselves. All right, let's apply the lesson to ourselves. Let us strive to be happy. I mean, not happy, but thankful. It prevents complaining. When we have, think we have a legitimate complaint, before we go telling somebody about it, let, let's sit down and muse over it and really analyze that and see if we really have grounds to complain before we expose ourselves to somebody else. And again, Thankfulness is a remedy to preventing. You cannot be thankful and complain at the same time. It's impossible. But as surely as we complain about our circumstances or something, we are manifesting we are unhappy and unthankful. And vice versa. Let us cry out to God, yes, with real needs, real burdens, real desire. Let us cry out to God over sin in a repentant way. But let us never come to God and cry out because we didn't have or get or achieve some petty little something other that's never going to amount to a hill of beans. No one. There are real things to be burdened and complain about. And when I say complain, we're really changing the definition of the word. Our time's about up, but I've I got to give you this so you'll know. Okay, Kenna? Uh, Hannah's prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 16. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, this when Eli finds her and thinks she's drunk. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken thereto. And if you will read her prayer, her attitude, and you know anything about Hannah here, you know she is not complaining in the complaining sense to God. She is making her burden known before God. But she's not whining and moaning, poor, pitiful me. Okay? Big difference. Keep it in the context. So there are things in that sense to, we use the word complain, but again it don't fit our modern definition of complain, to bring before God real needs, real problems. Not, Lord, I need a raise. Not, Lord, I need a new car. Not, you know, this petty stuff. Or I'd like to have better food than I used to have. All that stuff. Rejoice over God's goodness. Don't covet. Don't lust. You, you can't lust after something or covet after something if you're rejoicing over what God's already done. Never question God or doubt God's ability to provide like they did. Don't ever say who. We know who. We can look at the past, we can look at the present, and therefore when we look to the future, we know who. He is able to provide above and beyond exceedingly abundantly. Beyond, the Scripture says, what we ask or need of Him. Remember Egypt, the bondage of sin, your deliverance. But the true test of a Christian is you'll never want to go back there. You'll look on it with disdain. 
You'll look at the time you spent there, not the best time of your life, but the worst time of your life, and you'll rejoice that you're away from there and you can't fall back into there, that God has delivered you there, that it's so much better out of there. Anybody that can go back to old memories, old things in their sins, say, boy, that was sure a good time. I wouldn't lie in spirit. There's something bad, bad wrong there. Because when God truly saves a person, you're truly born again, you will loathe sin. Just count our blessings. There's no need to be discontent because we didn't deserve anything anyway. Pursue down that path of thankfulness and you will arrive at the destination of contentment. You'll get there. You just keep on being thankful. I don't know how long it'll take you. It may not be the same as it takes me, but if we continue on the path of thankfulness, I can tell you exactly where you'll end up. You're going to arrive at that state of being called contentment. And then that stuff that mattered before, <laughs> just laugh. I have to laugh at myself sometimes in repentance that why did I make such a big deal of that then? What difference does it make? I give this to you like the old boy. Remember again, he hung the tags on everything he had and he was very wealthy, soon to be burned so he wouldn't get too attached and remember that it's not going to mount to nothing anyway. Okay. When we weep, let's weep over sin. Whether it's in our lives or somewhere else. Weep over sin. Weep over the consequences of sin. Weep over the effects of sin. The sin we see in the world, the sin we see in others. But let us not weep over pitying ourselves. That's literally beyond childish. Beyond infantile. Let's manifest we're really Christians by not doing the things they did. May the Holy Spirit work in us and prevent us and give us a detesting and a loathing to behave in such a manner as these people who were known as the people of God. May God bless this to your heart.